0: This is the word of the Lord from Luke 13. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But he replied to him, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will produce fruit next year, and if not, you can cut it down. Amen. Thank you, Bonnie. Good morning, church family. It's good to see you all. I'm grateful for this little bit of blue sky and sunshine in February here. That's pretty nice. Uh, If you're new and a guest with us or joining us for the first time, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, and we are going through a teaching series called Stories of the Kingdom, in which we are digging into the parables of Jesus. And we're going to spend the majority of our time here talking about uh, these parables, and one in particular we just heard our sister Bonnie read. But um, back to the first point that I made, that I am one of the pastors here. I just want to take a few minutes and just address uh, publicly here in the worship gathering. Um, we sent out an email last week. We had a, a meeting with our community group leaders on Sunday. We had an open meeting with the church on Monday night. <clears throat> and then we sent up a follow-up video and email midway through this week, I think on Thursday in which we've shared. And so if you're just kind of finding this out today, I I apologize. But uh, I just want to address that you know, over the last year and a half, uh, my wife and I and our family have really been seeking the Lord, praying, wrestling with God, trying to determine what He's doing in our lives as well as what He's doing in the church. And kind of at the end of last year, we came to uh, the determination that the Lord was, in fact, leading me into a new season and to step out of my role as the preaching pastor here of this church uh, come this summertime. And um, the the primary reason, there's a few reasons, but the, the real primary reason for that is that these last few years of leadership leading through many challenges and even many crises have just taken a toll on my soul and have taken a toll on our family, and uh, such that I need to really spend a season with the Lord, uh, not carrying the weight of pastoral ministry. Uh, Ministry is always challenging. Ministry is always tough. People that you know and love and care about move out of state and take a job, or people that you know and love and care about um, give place to sin and just really devastate their lives, or people that you know and love and care about take their last breath and go to see Jesus face to face and you have to preach at their funeral. Uh, But these last few years have just been extra, extra challenging, extra difficult and the Lord has been showing me some areas in my own life that I need to grow and I need to be shaped and changed and it requires a step of obedience and a step of faith. Um, Honestly, a step that I didn't want to make. In my flesh... Uh, I don't like to disappoint people or let people down. Uh, I don't like to uh, I don't like to let people down. But as my sister Diane said today, it's it's really far worse to to disappoint the Lord and to be disobedient to what He's leading us to. Um, Honestly, this last year of Sound City's life and existence has been a really good year. Things have been moving in a really amazing direction. I'm grateful for uh, the Lord raising up new elder candidates like Jeremiah here, or bringing us new staff members like Susanna, who's just, this is her first time ever doing the welcome. She killed it. She's so good, very natural. So many people carrying such a great uh, amount of responsibility. Things have been really trending in such a healthy and such a good direction. Um, and it's given me the space to kind of do the, the look in the mirror and the honest soul searching with the Lord to reveal just how kind of depleted I have been and the the need for this new season. And so I love you. I love this church. I want to say very clearly on the record um, that this is it. Um, I know that when there's a transition like this, some people might want to ask questions like, is there something else going on? Um, and unequivocally, No. Uh, there, I'm, I'm not walking away from the faith. I'm not having some crisis of faith. I love Jesus, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to Bible even harder in this next season. Um, I'm not in some fight with the staff or the elders other than John blasting 90s music in his office next to me. It's, it's like, bro, I didn't even like Matchbox 20 the first time when they were around, so... <laughs> But it's, it's, it really is just trying to be obedient to the Lord and His leading. And, um, I have really, really loved serving and leading this church for the eight years of Sound City's existence. Nine, if you glue on the, the Marcel Shoreline year before that. And, um, man, I love this church. I really love this church. And you can't get rid of me yet. Uh, be around for a few more months. My, my plan and my aim, Lord willing, is to walk <clears throat> alongside you all through the month of June, at which point I'll hand off. And, and also right now, just, this is a season, just be praying for the elder team as they're trying to seek the Lord. Um, it's kind of a strange place for me to be because, uh, making decisions that I'm not going to be the one that has to live with. So These other men are going to be the ones really taking point on some of this. So right now is not a time for like, hey, let's do this and let's do that. Right now is just a time to pray and seek the Lord. And by God's grace, hopefully making this announcement sooner than later gives them and gives all of us a time to walk this out together and be able to seek the Lord. And I'll also just say this too. I have received so much love and encouragement this last week since making the announcement, text messages, emails, letters delivered on my porch. Um, (laughs) Y'all are making me second guess (laughs) the decision, but um, the Lord has made it clear that this is the case. And so thank you so much for loving me and my family well in this time. And with whatever little bit of energy and strength I've got left, I intend to lift up our Savior Jesus and scream about how awesome he is. So that's my goal for today. And that's what we're going to do. So thank you. So we're going to talk about the parable of the dead fig tree today. Yeah. Uh, My parents are currently in Hawaii. And then just the other day, they took my oldest daughter as her graduation present to go to Hawaii. Hope just got back from Hawaii. Hawaii. In about two weeks, my wife is leaving with another friend of hers to go to Hawaii. After the 9 a.m. service, a 10-year-old boy walked up to me and said, hey, our family's leaving for Hawaii this week. (laughs) So here I am in Seattle preaching about dead trees. Let's do this, okay? Will you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your provision for us. You are incredible, Lord God. And we give you thanks and praise for your word in which we can hear um, the teachings of our Savior Jesus and we can see his goodness and mercy on display. Lord, for myself, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and help me to only preach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And Lord, would you help grow each one of us as wholehearted followers of Jesus as a result of our time together today. And we pray this all in his name. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Okay. Today is that unofficial American holiday, the Super Bowl. And I actually read a a little thing in the news this morning, just as I was kind of waking up, that actually, because we all watch this at the same time, it is probably the single most unifying event in American culture. Even Thanksgiving, people eat at different times of the day or do different traditions. The Super Bowl is this incredibly unifying event. And in the Super Bowl, there are two categories of people. There are people who care about football, the game, the bowl itself, right? And then there are—I <laughs> heard that there are cat uh, who who are you're only tuning in probably for one reason and one reason only—the commercials. Okay, the I've heard people complaining recently that the Super Bowl commercials aren't as good as they used to be. And I would like to challenge that. The Super Bowl commercials are as good as they used to be. It just used to be that in the older days, the regular commercials were terrible. So the Super Bowl commercials seem better by comparison. But nowadays, commercials are amazing pretty much 12 months out of the year. Now, the commercials, I have an aim today. I'm trying to ruin them for you, okay? And I, pre- I feel pretty confident that I'm going to be able to succeed in this. When you watch the commercials, pay attention to how every single commercial is selling you some version of the good life. I saw a Taco Bell commercial the other day. I was watching a basketball game. There was a Taco Bell commercial. I don't know if Taco Bell is going to be advertising today, but I'm guessing that they, they will be. It was a rooftop party. It was the most like multi-ethnic group of just beautiful human beings you've ever seen enjoying their chalupas and Mountain Dew, Okay. <laughs> If you have this chalupa, you will be surrounded by the most beautiful, multi-ethnic group of people you've ever seen, right? If you buy this beer, you will suddenly get a six-pack. Not how I've seen beer work in the lives of people I know. Uh, And you'll be surfing on the beach. If you want freedom, if you want to be able to just go anywhere, an Acura will help you do that. And if you want to be connected deeply with friends and family, Verizon has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) Every stinking commercial is selling you some vision of the good life. Something that you want, something that you need. Pay attention. Pay attention to every single commercial. They're all selling you this abundant, fruitful, delightful, good life. Now, if there was a Super Bowl in the ancient Near Eastern world, and if they had commercials in the ancient Near Eastern world, the world that the Bible comes to us from, what kind of commercials would they have run? Well, in the place of an Acura, it would have been a donkey. You want freedom? You want to go to the Decapolis? <whistles> oh, this donkey will get you there, right? You know? I don't know, the connection of friends and family. You want to be able to communicate by this shofar. <whistles> like, oh, it's time for dinner, okay? But I think that the the chalupas and the Mountain Dew and the beer and the Doritos and all of those delightful foods, I tell you what, I feel very confident of this. The commercials would have been about figs. You're like, really, Aaron? Yes, figs. In the ancient world, figs were uh, delighted in. Figs, if you read through the Bible, figs were often planted alongside of vineyards. We actually saw that in our scripture reading today in Luke chapter 13, verse six, that fig trees are planted in vineyards. And so with the vine and the grapes, you would make wine. And with the figs, you would make fig cakes or desserts. This really is, I'm not joking, it's the ancient version of you know, cheesecake and wine kind of a thing. And because of that delight and that goodness, figs became a symbol for the good life. You can see this very clearly in a passage like 1 Kings chapter four that's talking about the rule of Solomon. His father David had, had vanquished all of Israel's enemies and now there's riches and abundance flowing into Israel. And it says that in that day, every man lived under his vine and under his fig tree in safety for all the days of Solomon the idea is like you're kicked back in a vineyard and you've got grapes on one side and figs on the other and you're just like, ah, this is the good life. When my daughter sends me pictures from Hawaii with her knees on the beach, she's like, yeah, that's the good life. No, 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 figs, okay? But because of this association with the good life, the biblical writers actually began to use figs and fig trees as a symbol for Israel herself, Israel herself becoming this symbol of the life of abundance, the life of blessing, the life of fruitfulness. You can see this in places like the prophet Hosea, chapter 9, where God, speaking through Hosea, says, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Craig Blomberg, who's a biblical scholar, puts it this way. He says, the vineyard was a stock metaphor for Israel sitting under one's own vine and fig tree and enjoying their produce became a frequent Old Testament image of the Israelite enjoying freedom and prosperity in the land. Can you think of a moment that you had in your life that was kind of like that? Sitting in a hammock, sunshine, or whatever it might be. Maybe it was in Hawaii, I don't know. See, God is saying that through Israel, his plan is to bring that kind of abundant good life to all the ends of the earth. How many of you know God created a world that was good, full of abundance, full of richness, full of delights to be enjoyed with him in his presence? We read that in our call to worship, that every seed-bearing plant and everything that the Lord made, he looked at it and he saw that it was what, church family? It was good. But how many of you know that Adam and Eve, believed the lie of the serpent. They believed the lie that God was holding out on them. They believed the lie that there was, in fact, some sort of good life to be had apart from the blessings of God. And the one tree that he said, you shall not eat from, that is the tree that they reached and they took from. And because of that, the fig tree... This portrait of blessing and sweetness and delight became uh, a symbol of their shame as they sewed fig leaves together to cover and hide their nakedness. And God then chose, uh, as as the Bible story progresses, he chooses this one man, Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm gonna use you. I'm gonna use your offspring. I'm gonna use your family to be a blessing to every people group under the sun. God desires that his children would enjoy his richness, would enjoy his blessing. How many of you know God is not a miser? God is not stingy. God is not anti-fun and anti-delight. But we, in our flesh and in our fallenness, we, we believe that same lie. It's the same lie that Adam and Eve believed. It's the same lie that the children of Israel believed. We believe this lie that God's holding out on us. And so you can read the story of the Old Testament. It's, just, it's the whole story is God's people uh, believing the lie and, and choosing to seek the good life with idols or with other false gods. And after years and years and decades and decades and centuries and centuries of patience and pleading, the Lord brought judgment upon them. And he removed them out of the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that, if you read in the book of Numbers, was full of grapes and pomegranates and figs. And they went into exile in Babylon. But God, in his mercy, after a period of time, let them return back to the promised land. And the people that went back to Israel set up shop and said, okay, we need to seek the restoration of God. We need to be restored into that good life, that life of promise. And after centuries, though, went by, they're still under the thumb. They're under the thumb of the Persians. Then they're under the thumb of the Greeks. They're under the thumb of the Romans. And they're just frustrated. Like, it's still not the good life. It's not the abundant life that we thought we were going to have with God. And then one day, a man named Jesus, Yeshua, from Nazareth, shows up. And he starts preaching, the kingdom of God is here. And all the people start going, oh, oh yeah, here it is, the good life, the life of fruitfulness, the life of abundance. It's gonna be in this guy. He's gonna be the Messiah. He's gonna kick out the Romans and we're gonna have the good life that we all want to have. And so Jesus is teaching, but he's doing miracles. He's healing people. He's providing food. And the people are like, we're all in. And it's at this point, kind of in the middle of Jesus' teaching ministry, that we find this story in Luke chapter 13. Go back to the beginning of the chapter, Luke 13. It says, at that time, some people showed up, they reported to him about the Galileans, that's people from kind of the north region of Israel, the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices, so Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor of Judea, uh, we know both from the scriptures as well as from ancient historians like Josephus and Tacitus, we know that Pilate was, uh, the technical historical term is a wicked, wicked person, cruel. In fact, he was eventually removed from his post by his Roman overlords because he was so cruel. And other than this verse, we don't have any other biblical or historical record of what exactly is happening here, but it seemed that Luke, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reporting to us some sort of an incident where a group of people from the north traveled south to Jerusalem. They went to go offer sacrifices in the temple and for whatever reason had run afoul of Pilate, and so he sent in the authorities to commit an act of brutality. And they were killed In the temple while offering their sacrifices, and their blood, their human blood, was mixed with the blood of the bulls and goats that the book of Leviticus said they were to offer, and it's this horrendous tragedy. It's an awful, awful thing. It's like when we read in the news about one of these just like unjustified police killing type of things. It is just an absolute horrendous moment, And so these people come up. This is the talk of the town. They come up to Jesus. They say, hey, did you hear what happened? Did you hear what happened? And Jesus responds in a very interesting way. He responds, do you think that these Galileans were somehow more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? Now, that's an interesting thing for Jesus to respond with, right? Because it doesn't explicitly say that they came up and said, do you think it's because they're so wicked? But I think that we're, based on Jesus' response, I think we're safe to infer that these people came up and said something like this to Jesus. Man, did you hear about what happened to those Galileans? They must have done something really bad to meet an end like that. They must have really done something to irk God. Jesus says, you think that they're more sinful than everybody else up in Galilee? Just because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Oh, Jesus, always so nice and fuzzy. (laughs) Jesus goes on hey, what about those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed? He's referencing something that's maybe less of like a direct act of, you know, of, of the authorities' mistreatment and just something more like an accident. You guys remember a few years ago um, up north, I think like Mount Vernon area, there was that bridge that collapsed. That just, I mean, just this horrendous tragedy out of nowhere. Jesus references that as well. He says, oh, the accident that, that, that happened, it fell and killed those people with the tower. Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people that are in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. See here, Jesus is addressing this really common misconception. The misconception is this. If you want the good life, just be a good person. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Some people refer to that as karma. But the Bible from start to finish paints us a different picture. The Bible does say that, yes, all human suffering is a result of sin. Can I get an amen from the church on that? There's brokenness in the world. There is suffering because of sin. But the Bible is consistent all the way. Jesus has been reading the book of Job. That you cannot draw a straight one-to-one line with suffering and accidents and public tragedies like this to say there's some sort of sin. Yes, there are times when your suffering and your hardship is a direct result of sin. If you drink too much, get behind the wheel of the car and destroy your life and the lives of other people, yes, that was sin that led to suffering. But there is all sorts of other suffering in the world, and you cannot draw a straight one-to-one connection and say, well, if these people had just lived better lives, they wouldn't have you know, been crushed by the tower. If they'd lived better lives, they wouldn't have been killed by pilots. Not all suffering is a result of some specific sin. And just file that away for the next time there's some natural disaster or some tragedy and some idiot gets on TV and blasphemes the name of God and says that that hurricane is because of such and such and whatever happening, you repudiate that and you reject it as quick as you can. You hear me? From the mouth of Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus, he corrects them, but he immediately now launches into a parable. Parable. So here's his parable. Once upon a time, Jesus said, there's a dude who has this fig tree that's planted in a vineyard. So this is a guy that is creating an awesome space. Vineyards and fig trees, cheesecake and wine, the good life. And so he shows up and he finds this fig tree and he's looking for some fruit and guess what? No fruit, nothing on the tree. And so he went to the vineyard worker, the guy that's responsible for kind of doing the work. He said, listen, for three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. Okay, time out real quick. Do you guys remember what Leviticus 19 says? You guys remember what Leviticus 19 says. Do not make me go back and preach to Leviticus again. You'll recall that Leviticus 19 says, when you plant a tree for the first three years, do not eat any of its fruit. Let it get us down. Now I see the head. Now it's coming back to you. Mm -hmm. It's like me whenever I rewatch any movie. I've always seen, I've seen the movie before. I don't remember it ever. Um, It says in the fourth year, all the fruit that grows, you take it and you give it as an offering to the Lord. So then finally in the fifth year, you're allowed to eat the fruit from the tree. So I think that these three years are years five, six, and seven. So this tree is actually a seven-year-old tree And he says, look, for three years, maybe it's in its eighth year, I've been coming looking for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any, so cut it down. It's wasting my soil. But he, the, the worker, replied to the owner, said, well, sir, just leave it for one more year also until I dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And then perhaps, maybe in its ninth year, it will produce fruit. But if not, then you can cut it down. The end. <laughs> You're left kind of like, wait a minute, Jesus, what? Is, explain the story. He actually already did. So some of you are like, okay, I'm not sure I see the connection between towers falling on people and all this stuff with this, with this tree. And so, so it raises this question, okay? It raises the question. This is the, the central question that we need to answer. How does Jesus define this fruitful, abundant, good life. That's what these people are asking about. They're asking about the bad things that happen to the bad people. And Jesus tells a parable about fig trees and vines, talking about this fruitful, abundant, good life. What's the connection? The connection's already there. But to help us, I would like to turn back 10 chapters to Luke chapter three. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Luke chapter three, and we're going to let Jesus' cousin, John, the baptizer, help explain it in very clear terms. John, the baptizer is out there. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's baptizing. He's telling people to get ready for the coming of the Messiah. And people start showing up and people start showing up. And John, ever so subtly, says to the crowds who came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers. It's not a nice compliment in case you're, you you basket of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? You know what you need to do? You need to produce fruit in keeping with, what's the word, Sound City? Repentance. Oh, fruit, repentance. Fruit, repentance. Jesus told a parable about fruit But earlier in the conversation, he told them to do what? To repent. And don't even start saying to yourselves, oh, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now, he says, the ax is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit, good fruit, what are we supposed to be thinking this fruit is like? The fruit of... That's the word. It's not a trick question. It's the R word repentance. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is the part where some of y'all say, I knew it. I knew you were going to save repentance. Of course, the preacher is going to talk about repentance because you don't want me to live the good life. You don't want me to live my best life now. I would like to submit to you that the Bible paints a portrait of counterfeit good life that is offered to us. There's a counterfeit that is presented. We see it here in the Bible. We see it in our world today. And I think in these passages, as well as in other things I've referenced here today, I think we can see four primary counterfeits, okay? The first counterfeit is the life of pleasure. Pleasure meaning just take what feels good. We see this in the garden when Adam and Eve saw that the fruit was desirable and they took of it this is the good life. God's holding out on me. This will give me pleasure. This will give me the good life. I'm just going to take it for myself. Friends, how many of you know in our world, in our culture, there is a lot of pleasure. I mean, that's literally what I'm talking about with all these Super Bowl ads. Pleasure. This will give you the good life you're looking for. This is the abundance you're hoping for. Take it. By the way, how many of you know it's not just the world out there, but even within the walls of the church, There's a religious version of that. Come get the the good, pleasurable life that God offers you. The second counterfeit that we can see, we see it very explicitly in the conversation between Jesus and these people around the, 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 the tragedies, is pride. If pleasure says, take what feels good, pride says, behave and be good. And then... You can be confident that you're living the good life because you're not living the bad life like those bad people. Looking down on others. Comparing yourself to others. These people in the conversation said, well, at least we didn't die like those bad people. And Jesus said, you still need to repent. You think you're so moral. You think you're so good. You think you're behaving in such a good way. Friends, that happens all the time in the church. Religious pride. Oh, I'm supposed. I'm just good. You know, I've 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 heard this from maybe well-meaning brothers and sisters in the faith. Well, if they hadn't done such and such, they wouldn't have. Da, 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 da. Friends, that is religious pride, and it's actually robbing you of the good life. By the way, lest I pick on the Christians and not the world as well. How many of you know that there is a very um, secular version of this pride and looking down on people? Our brother Steve last week talked about cancel culture. There's nothing else at the heart of cancel culture other than saying, I'm good, they're bad, we must destroy them. That's all that it is. It's a secular version of fundamentalism. Pride, I'm good. A third counterfeit that we often see is that of productivity, which is prove that you're good. Act, go, do, earn, conquer, achieve. The Lord does desire results, does he not? The Lord desires us to produce things. But there are people, Jesus has, He tells a story in, in Matthew's gospel that there's these people that come up to him and say, Lord, didn't we drive out demons in your name? And didn't we do all these things? Look at all of our productivity. Look at all these amazing things we've accomplished. And what does Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. The apostle Paul says that, that, that there's a different definition of the fruit that the Lord is desiring from us. Productivity is a false, counterfeit, good life. And then lastly, the fourth one is position. Gain a status that is good. In John chapter, or sorry, Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptizer is talking with these people, they said, Don't don't tell me that, oh, we're the children of Abraham. Like, you got this position. Now, this is a little bit less common in our culture and more common in traditional cultures. We, we've kind of flattened everything in, in American culture where we don't have the class system as much. I mean, unless your last name was something like Kennedy, you know, you're not going to really get that kind of respect in our culture. But in more traditional cultures, man, what family you were born into or you're an upper class or whatever, it's, I've got the good life because I was born into or I somehow achieved this higher class, this status that I think I want. All of them are a perversion and a twisting of actually something good that God wants to give to us. Each one of these is, it's a, it's a twisting. It's a messing up, right? Pleasure, pleasure on its own is actually supposed to be satisfaction in God. Pleasure is supposed to be satisfaction in God. I said to you, God is not a miser. He is not holding out on us. He created all things good for us to enjoy. Psalm, uh, Psalm 27, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We were meant to be satisfied in Christ, but instead we perverted and turned it into the, the fleshly pursuit of pleasure. And pride, what is this pride? It's actually supposed to be our sanctification. How many of you know God wants to grow you and change you so that you sin less? This was not a trick question. How many of you know that God wants you to grow and mature so that you sin less? But in, 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 our, in our sinfulness, it, in turn, instead of becoming like, God, thank you that you're changing me and shaping me and growing me, it turns into pride. and We look down and say, well, at least I'm not bad like that person. Productivity. God wants us to produce things, but it's not supposed to just be kind of pure, raw, naked sort of productivity. It's supposed to be spiritual fruit. God cares not just what we do, but how we do it. And the Apostle Paul writes that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And if you go out and you run around and say you're doing a bunch of things for God, but you lack the character of God, then you don't know him. Pure productivity is not spiritual fruit. And position Our sin takes us this clamoring for position and we forget that if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, then we are already seated with Christ Jesus in heavenly places and you cannot have a better status and position. My goodness. The element that is missing from the entire left side of the column there is repentance. That's what's missing. The equation doesn't balance out otherwise. There is satisfaction to be had. There is sanctification to be had. There is a spiritual fruit, and there's a confidence that you are seated with Christ if you will but embrace what Jesus is saying is the good life. It's repentance. Jesus says that true, abundant, fruitful life begins and ends with a lifestyle of repentance. You want the good life? You want the the, the figs and the fruit of the vine? Repent. 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 So, what does this repentance look like? Well, I think there's four things that I want to draw out from this passage. First, true repentance turns from both. Sinful pleasure and pride. Some of you here, you know your own disposition. You know that you're the kind of person that will chase after pleasures. And you know that maybe you're the kind of person that will seek to satisfy your own longings and your own desires apart from God. You will believe that lie that God is holding out on you. Repent of that. Others of you, though, Maybe you're more naturally self-disciplined, you're more naturally moral, but you need to be on guard against pride and trusting in your own goodness. True repentance recognizes that in myself, I have nothing good and I am completely broken from top to bottom, inside and out, and I am in desperate need of the mercy of God. Amen? true repentance turns from both sinful pleasure and pride. Number two, we see in this passage that true repentance does not presume upon God's patience. A few weeks ago when I taught on the parable of the mustard seed, I highlighted the patience of God in growing his kingdom and the patience of God on full display in that parable. And I could not say enough things about the patience of God, amen? God is so patient. He is exceedingly patient. He's more patient than me. He's more patient than you. But the Bible is clear that his patience is not limitless, that there will come a day where he will call all of his creation to account, and if we have not embraced the lifestyle of repentance, if we are not bearing fruit that is in keeping with repentance, then judgment will come. Judgment will come. Now, if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in him through that act of repentance, through that posture of repentance, then you have nothing to fear on the day of judgment. But I fear that some of you who listen to me or who go to church or who pay attention to to Christian activities on a regular basis, you are presuming upon the patience of God. You have not repented of your sins. You've not trusted in him. And friends, I love you, but there is a day of judgment coming, And I and anyone else who is faithful to the word of God must warn you, do not take his patience for granted. I was reading a sermon from Charles Spurgeon preaching on this exact passage over 150 years ago. And he said these hard words to all unprofitable, unfruitful, I could say unrepentant sinners. We utter this hard but needful sentence to cut you down would be most reasonable. How dare we think that God has no right to bring judgment upon his creation? He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And like the owner of a vineyard, he has the right to make a decision as to whether the tree will stay or go. Do not delay. Do not wait. Do not presume upon the patience and the mercy of God. True repentance turns from everything within me that might try to justify myself. True repentance does not presume upon God's patience but said I must act now. Number 3. True repentance often comes as a result of digging and dung. What does the worker in the vineyard say to the owner? hey, let me, let me shred the soil. Let me dig it up. Let me do some pretty disruptive stuff. And let me pile some manure all around it. Maybe that will get it to produce fruit. Um, if you are anything like me, you do not like disturbances, difficulties, unpleasant things, raise your hand if you're anything like me. part of the journey that the Lord has me on right now is recognizing my own sinful tendency to, to push away from hardships and to kick against that kind of disruption. But, but in this parable, Jesus is saying that it is often these disruptions, these hardships, the, the, the turning and the churning and the crap that comes into our lives that will produce the, the kind of repentance and the kind of fruit that the Lord wants to, to bring about in us. Uh, brothers and sisters, I'm pleading with you, do not fight against the Lord's sanctifying work. He uses these difficulties and disturbances to get our attention. Tear up the soil, put some manure around it. Friends, I can tell you, um, it's really easy in our culture, particularly here in specifically the North Puget Sound area where we have so much affluence and so much material comfort, it is very easy to just, hardships come and we can buy them away. We can wallpaper over it, but what if the Lord is trying to get your attention so that you might actually be a fruitful tree for his garden, for his kingdom? And lastly, true repentance Turns to the advocate. I love that in this parable, so you don't want to stretch the characters too far. People get into trouble when you try to overanalyze every little detail of the parable. But in this parable, there is a character who speaks up and said, Hey, let me do some work. Let me do some work to bring about repentance. Let me let me let me do for this tree what this tree could not do for itself. There is one in this story who intercedes on behalf of the tree, who stands up, who speaks up and said, Yeah, I I think I can I think I can do a miracle with this tree. Um here's the good news, friends. Hear, hear me on this. You can't even repent right. You're so messed up and sinful that even your repentance is screwed up. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, wrote, he said, there's only one person who could have repented perfectly and he didn't need to. It was Jesus. He was talking about Jesus. See, repentance isn't this work that you yourself do. Repentance is a complete despairing of yourself and saying, I need an advocate to do for me what I could not do for myself. And in this parable, the advocate speaks up and said, I will work the miracle. I will do the digging. I will churn the soil. I will bring the fertilizer. I will bring life to this dead tree. And friends, that is what we have in our advocate, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and his blood went into the soil of the earth that all who would trust in him would be forgiven of their fruitlessness and that he, through his resurrection, might infuse life into us dead trees. We can't even repent rightly, but because of the work of Jesus, we can be brought back from the dead into life. This is incredible, friends. Charles Spurgeon goes on in that same sermon that I referenced earlier to say that our text represents the gardener as only asking to have it spared, but Jesus Christ did something more than ask. He pleaded not with his mouth only, but with pierced hands and pierced feet and pierced side, and those prevailing pleas have moved the heart of God, and you are yet spared. This is the good news of the gospel, friends. I'm a dead, fruitless, figness tree. But I have a gardener who gave his life for me, died in my place, rose again, that I might be brought from death to life. Hallelujah. This is good news, friends. So good. So let me ask a few questions in conclusion. Conclusion. Okay? In conclusion, stirring the imagination. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. The the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of this earth. So how do we stir the imagination? Question number one, where do you seek the good life apart from a lifestyle of repentance? (laughs) I wanted to um, tell a story quickly. We have some people who were part of this church for many years, Sam and Shushan, and they've recently moved to California to be closer to family, but they're from Armenia originally, and you might know they've spent many years traveling over there, preaching the gospel, and doing missionary work, and well, the first time I ever went over to their house, they offered me figs. From the tree that they had transplanted from Armenia to their backyard in Edmonds. And they're like, please, Pastor Aaron, please eat. There's like this, this delicacy. And they're like, eat these figs, eat these figs. And I was like, oh, oh, so I'm very honored. I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very just touched that they want to honor me in this way. And I grab one of the figs and I eat it and I go, all right, okay. Huh. Now I've had fig Newtons. And that's what my American palate is used to. So much so that when I tasted the real thing, it kind of felt, ugh. Huh, hmm. And then I ate a second one. I'm not going to give up. I'm stubborn, optimistic. Three, four. Five, and then I got it. Oh, six, seven. I'm like, please take these figs and put them away from me. I get it. I get it. I actually wanted to bring figs and Fig Newtons today just to show you how all y'all need to repent. But um, here's here's the point I'm trying to make. To our fleshly palate, we want fig Newtons. We want the fake thing. We want the good life. We want pride. We want pleasure. We want productivity. We want position. Jesus is inviting us to actually learn how to taste the goodness of the real thing. And I'll be honest, in my flesh, it doesn't taste good. In your flesh, it doesn't taste good. Repentance doesn't feel good to our flesh, but it is the abundant, fruitful, good life that God is offering to us. So where do you need to reject your chemical-filled Fig Newtons? Some of you are like, I don't even like Fig Newtons. That's fine. Chocolate chip cookies versus, you know, whatever. I don't care. You figure it out on your own. But the point being, repentance is the good life. Where does your palate, your flesh, Seek that good life apart from this lifestyle of repentance. Ask that question. Question number two. In a world full of pleasure, pride, position, productivity, how do we live as citizens of the kingdom? This is a great question to ask at your home, around the dinner table, in your community group. It's a great question to ask as you watch the Super Bowl this afternoon. Because every single commercial, I'm telling you, I I did it. I ruined the Super Bowl for you. You're welcome. Watch and see how the world is promoting this alternative of the good life, and you and I are called to be citizens of the kingdom. No, it's not a sin to buy an Acura. No, it's not a sin to have a Verizon phone. No, it's not a sin to enjoy Taco Bell. It might be a sin to enjoy Taco Bell, but you know what I mean? Like It's the, the idea of it's this is what will satisfy me as opposed to thinking God himself is what will satisfy me. Third question. How can we get creative and spirit-led to explain repentance to people in our lives who think that they hate the idea. If you and I, as followers of Jesus, our, our taste buds are off, how much more so those who have yet to taste and see that the Lord is good? Repentance feels like a swear word. Repentance feels like just the worst thing possible. How can you and I demonstrate that a lifestyle of repentance is the fruitful good life that God wants for us. I actually want to lead us directly into communion. I want to lead us directly into the Lord's table. So I'll invite the musicians to come join me up on stage and I'll invite those who are serving communion to come forward and get in place if you would, please. Because here's the deal. Communion is this, from an earthly perspective, it's this meager little meal It's this meager little, you know, cracker and a little cup of either wine or juice, depending on your conscience. But friends, in this meal, we have a feast, the abundant good life offered through Christ Jesus and accessed only in a heart of repentance. I want to read a slightly different passage than we often do. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 22, where Jesus When the hour came, he was reclining at table and the apostles were with him. And he said, I have really earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this, divide it among yourselves, For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Friends, in this cup is the fruit of the vine, the good life that we all long for, the blood of Jesus Christ. And he took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was broken. He died so that us dead trees could be brought back to life. He was chopped down so that we might be spared. And then he says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You don't have to fear. You don't have to worry. You don't have to delay. You can repent. And you can trust that he will take your feeble, imperfect act of repentance and bring to life something truly beautiful in you. I'll remind you that communion is for believers only. If you're a guest with us and you have put your faith in Jesus, please, by all means, join us at the table. If you are one of those people who has come and checked and and, and kept your, you know, dipped your toe around the edge, do not delay. Today is the day of salvation. You can come talk to somebody. You can, you can just throw yourself on the mercy of God. God, I am sorry for my sin, my unfruitfulness. I don't even know how to repent, but I repent. And you come forward and you join us at the table as an act of saying, I give my life to you, Jesus. Come do that. I remind you to come down these aisles, and return out the outside. But more importantly than anything else, let's bring our repentant hearts to the Lord. Let's eat and drink his life within us that we might be fruitful and abundant trees. Amen? Lord, would you, br- would you bless each person that comes forward to eat and to drink today? Would you help us to grow in our understanding of that good life of abundance that you've given to us? Forgive us, Lord, when we seek it apart from you and would you help us to be fruitful, abundant trees planted in your garden, enjoying you in this life and in the life to come when Jesus returns and all things are made new. And until that day, Lord, would you nourish us for the journey ahead. It's in his name we pray, amen.